When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, Ed Harrison here for Real Vision. I have the distinct pleasure of talking to Neil Howe, Managing Director of Demography at Hedgeye. Neil, welcome back to Real Vision. Uh, thank you for having me, Ed. You know, I was saying this is totally cold turkey because you and I, we haven't spoken uh, before, re- r- literally like three minutes ago. And uh, I've been really excited to talk to you about all the changes that have been happening. I'll, I'll tell you why, in part, because you know, you and I, we spoke before the coronavirus pandemic happened. I think it was maybe January of 2020. And we met in a townhouse or a, a, a row house in downtown DC. And yeah. the way I remember it is before we met, we had sort of a prep call and I was sort of like, you know, I don't know about this whole fourth turning stuff at all. I'm really, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't know where I stand on it. But Ultimately, I think one, it was a really good interview. Uh, and two, I think that I've become much more interested in uh, your macro view since we've done that interview. And so uh, that's now that we've had the pandemic for so long, I want to get a sense of, you know, what's changed in terms of your viewpoint just on a global basis uh, as a result of the pandemic. Well, that's a global question, isn't it? <laughs> uh, you know, I, uh, I, uh, uh, I am a demographer, right? And so we tend to look uh, at things like uh, fertility, mortality, migration, all of that. And most of the time to be a demographer, it's like watching paint dry. You know what I mean? <laughs> Nothing much changes. It's kind of like watching a glacier move forward. I will have to say, though, this last year has been a big one for demographers, right? Uh, uh, obviously, the uh, the mortality, uh, but also the fertility. Uh, right. There's incredible changes around the world. Uh, uh, South Korea now, a total fertility rate of uh, 0.84. Never seen that before in a, in a large, you know, uh, country. Uh, absent, um, you know, catastrophic uh, 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 destruction. Actually, it wasn't so bad for South Korea this year. You know, they actually didn't have many deaths. Uh, you know, they had that one early outbreak in Daegu. Actually, it was a very, um, it was a very un unAsian thing. It was it was a bunch of you know these these uh, kind of a Christian community coming together to give each other group hugs. I don't know if you recall that, but it happened. I do. It was back in uh, March or uh, or uh, or, uh, or April. It was very early on. They contained that. They've done very well. Uh, but this, uh, but these, but these, these huge declines are 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 extraordinary. You see this in Japan. You see this in China. You see this in the United States. Uh, there is a chance that the United States, given the lack of migration. Uh, the the high mortality and the huge drop in fertility, uh, we could actually have a negative population growth here. Uh, we're not ordinarily predicting that to happen in America until the you know the the I don't know early 2040s. Right? I mean that's when everything slows down. The boomers finally begin to pass away, uh, and uh, and and then but but you know even there. We're looking for, um, uh, you know, even there, we're looking for uh, net immigration to keep us uh, positive over the long term. So um, uh, it's very likely we had what demographers call a negative net, uh, you know, natural increase year, which is basically, you know, uh, kind of, uh, you know, births minus deaths, you know, being negative. So this is, this is, these are really interesting events for demographers. Um, Obviously, as uh, as you know, we also we also follow um, 
uh, politics, uh, mood changes, uh, and everything else. This has been an extraordinary year. It ended in a, it started in a very strange way uh, and a very alarming way. I think I started, uh, I wrote my first piece on the, um, the Wuhan outbreak uh, already in uh, mid-February. I was writing about it. I remember telling everyone this is going to be worse than people think. And indeed it was. And we've been running, um, I think, every, every week, two weeks or three weeks uh, at Hedgeye, we've been running pieces on the, on the COVID outbreak, sort of monitoring as it goes forward. You know, my overall take on it is that it's going to, um, this is going to be a longer process. Uh, it's not just going to be like flipping the lights off. Um, and partly because of the length of time to do the vaccine rollout, but also has been widely discussed recently, this whole question of uh, uh, variants. Um, you know, the, the long-term hope, of course, is it becomes a domesticated virus, more like the common cold, just another coronavirus wandering around. <clears throat> Interestingly enough, there is a theory out there, it's still a minority theory among um, health experts, but it's out there that a very uh, virulent um, plague really that uh, hit the Western world in uh, 1889 and 1890, which is often called, um, you know, the Russian flu. You know, it's always gets called by somebody over there, right? Was, is widely regarded to be an influenza virus. Right. It may actually have been, there's a few people who think it may actually have been a coronavirus, which later trans, you know, later kind of uh, cooled itself off and became later one of the common colds. We have about four of them, I think two of them, and widely circulation coronaviruses that are just common colds. So it's an interesting theory that that's how that started out. And, and I think that is the idea of the, the long-term future for the coronavirus it also makes us aware of how, uh, how vulnerable we are to these things. Let me say that on the demographic question, the thing that I'm thinking about is um, you, how this compares to previous demographic shifts uh, in terms of magnitude and potentially, especially given what you're saying about the potential longevity of coronavirus and therefore some demographic changes, um, you know, how long this is going to be. I have a great interest in uh, mid-century modern culture. Uh, that's sort of like the post-World uh, War II culture. And in the Washington, D.C. area, it's very interesting. You know, the, my generation, which is the uh, Gen X, baby bus generation, in D.C., it, 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 it was coincident with, obviously, uh, birth control and, as a result, a, a massive demographic shift. Every single <clears throat> uh, area that I can see elementary schools, there was just a huge shutdown in schools. There was just a massive uh, change between the mid 70s and the mid 80s that was very transformational uh, for how education got done in the DC area. Um, I think those are the kinds of, of demographic shifts that I'm thinking about. How does this compare to that one in particular? You know, we're already beginning to see some really uh, stunning regional changes just in regional migration. And uh, uh, people, are, people are moving out of uh, the big urban areas, particularly the so-called super cities, right, that have been so high priced. I mean, we're talking about, you know, New York City and Boston and, and the Bay Area and the Seattle, you know, the, 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 those kinds of places. Uh, and it's happening for, for many reasons. I mean, uh, you know, the most obvious one is people didn't want to get sick. Uh, you saw, I think it was almost immediately, people moving out of midtown Manhattan. You could just, just see that satellite heat map, just everyone in the mid. I mean, they immediately moved out, right? They, they, were, they had plenty of money. They could do it. They moved, right? And it's extraordinary how slowly people are in moving back. Uh, but I do think that this is, again, going to be a longer-term phenomenon, uh, partly because people are figuring out that they can work, uh, you know, uh, by distance, like we are right now, Ed. You know, <laughs> we, we would be doing this in, a, in an actual studio, right? Right. And, and I think a large part of the workforce is able to do that. Now, that's particularly sort of, you know, more educated, more professional, uh, but, but they, they, they don't have to be in the office. 
Uh, I've looked at all kinds of surveys that have come out about people's response to that. It's surprisingly positive across the board. People think that their productivity is just as good. Uh, you know, it's better for the planet. They're not commuting. They save huge amounts of time. They get to spend more time with their family. I mean, they go down the things. And of course, then you have the the uh, the CEO of the business who's wondering, how much are we paying on that lease? You know, <laughs> downtown for all that. I mean, what are we doing this for, right? So you have this kind of win-win shift. I think this is one of these path-dependent behavioral changes, right? You don't know what it's going to be like until you actually do it. And then suddenly you figure, wait a minute, we don't have to go back doing it the other way, right? So I think that's going to be enduring. Meanwhile, you've had a big um, retirement of boomers this past year. About a million more boomers retired than had been retiring over the past, you know, three, four or five years, right? This kind of big cohort that's sort of in there uh, just past age 65. Now, a lot of these group have been working more and more. We've seen that as a big trend in recent years, right? They're, they're working more and more as they get into the, their uh, late 60s, early 70s. <clears throat> but we found a big, uh, um, a big reduction in that. So these are people, now these tend to be at the other end of the income distribution. They tend to be uh, lower income, they tend to be uh, uh, not as educated, and these are the people who uh, uh, you know, can't, can't work by distance. These are the people who are you know, dealing with people every day, and they just decided, a lot of them I'm sure, I've, you know, I've been thinking about retiring for a while and this is it. I mean, there's no reason I should be doing this. And the first thing they're gonna do is to move out of the cities or the or the or the suburbs where they're in because they're they're too expensive, right? There's no need that they have to pay all that money, so they're going to be moving out. Then you have all these people who um, uh, who used to live in nursing homes, uh, and many of them had been moving back with their extended families, and that means that working age people uh, have to buy bigger homes, or or can't downsize as they've been wishing to, right? Uh, and in addition, you have uh, uh, affluent retirees who live out, you know, wherever they are. And, and some of them, it's, it's not a big stream, but it's a small stream every year who want to buy townhouses, you know, luxury townhouses in the cities, right? They want to go down and live, you know, downtown in, you know, D.C. or Boston or something like that. Um, well, that has completely stopped, right? <laughs> no nightlife anymore. And furthermore, it's dangerous and all the. So um, this is why you see single family home construction just going vertical, you know, over the past couple of months and uh, multi-unit construction, anything to do with commercial building and in, 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 in cities just absolutely plummeting, right? So this is a big shift. And I think this is not, temporary. Yeah. When you say it's not temporary, I, I think I have two questions on that. One is which of the, sh the demographic changes that you're talking about are the ones to watch and the ones that are going to be the most impactful, both in the economy and the political economy? And then secondly, also over what period of time do you think that these shifts will occur and that we'll start to uh, understand that they are permanent or semi-permanent? Well, I think the uh, the migration shift is you will get obviously some moving back. What I meant to say was it's not simply going to revert back. I right, think this yes. is the assumption. Um, and you will get some shift back. No question about it. Obviously, people, people already are coming a little bit back more into Manhattan. I'm sure more will come back. Um, but it's not going to be the same. Right. Uh, uh, and, and all these, I'm just thinking of... Um, of a corporate headquarters, actually, they've been putting off moving into downtown Chicago, McDonald's. <laughs> they finally moved down into just before the pandemic, you know, bad timing, you know, on that one, right? So, uh, uh, but, but this is the problem, right? So a lot of these people will be relocating back and they will be staying back. Um, I think that the, um, and keep in mind that even though many people are coming back, there are many people who've made up their minds to leave and they just they haven't done it yet because of the pandemic. So uh, I think it will come back a bit, but it won't come back to what it was before. I think that would be important. By the way, I think that's a good thing. Uh, these, these 
big super cities I was talking about are places where, you know, um, a, a lot of uh, working age people can't afford to live. I mean, these are places where teachers have to, you know, commute for, you know, 90 minutes, two hours just to get to their job because they're not paid enough to live anywhere near <laughs> the school. I mean, you know, you know, you know, the kind of thing I'm talking about, right? So these are, these are the, this will actually be good. And I know a lot of states, uh, California, I think taking the lead on this is actually forcing counties and uh, municipalities to, uh, to do rezoning and actually uh, 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 force them to allow the creation of more housing units. You know, uh, one thing that's been terrible about these super cities is that once real estate prices began to go up, everyone sort of saw, well, okay, let's just restrict any future construction and go up even further, right? So everyone benefits who owns property, but no one can move in. And I, I think that it did take a higher level of political, political authority to say no to that and that's happening. I think that's a good thing. So these things are probably good things. I know a lot. I think it's a good thing that people get to spend more time, you know, with their with their families. Um, and people are also becoming aware that pe kids can be educated more online, right? That's another thing we can do. The result of this, of course, Ed, is to take a trend that we've already seen for the past ten or fifteen years, which is something I've called the great renaissance of extended family living in America. You know, everyone's coming back to live in these big households. And we've seen a steady growth in the number of people living in each number of adults per household, right? Um, you know, millennials coming to live back home and, you know, uh, older people are, you know, husbands are living longer so that they're, you know, they're both staying married for longer. And, um, you know, millennials are also obviously living with each other uh, in groups. Uh, and now we see it even, you know, going even further during the pandemic. And, and I think what this does is it means that the valuation that you used to give to these offices, uh, these big office buildings has, or the schools have gone back to the home. So this is why home prices are going up right now, right? The home is where everything happens, right? Uh, that's why we, that's why everyone ran out of toilet paper because the whole industry had been delivering toilet paper to offices in a different form, right? I mean, basically, every you know uh, all the all the cleaning materials now that people are buying for their home, the home is where a lot more is happening. Um, again, that's not continue at the same extreme level that we've seen in the past year, but I think that's actually part of a longer term generational trend. As you see, a lot of millennials getting along better with their with their boomer parents, you know, than Xers necessarily got along with theirs, or certainly more than boomers got along with theirs. That was a terrible story, right? So that you could say is a is a, is a very positive trend. I do see very positive trends going going on in in in, in family life, um, but it's also been a very traumatic time. Uh, we've seen a um, Contrary to what we saw, what I thought we'd saw earlier to, uh, this year, there have been a rise in uh, uh, motor vehicle fatalities. Can you believe that? Yeah. I mean, no one is driving in the first two quarters of, of, of 2020. But when people got out on the road, they were so completely crazy that we're actually going to have a significantly higher total mortality by the end of, uh, you know, when we finally count it at the end of 2020 than we did in the previous few years on, on, on the highways. The murders, uh, looks like murders are up. Overall crime is down, particularly property crime. No one was breaking into houses <laughs> because someone was gonna be there, right? <laughs> so uh, property crime was way down. It looks like even violent assaults and so on are down, but murder was up. And a lot of reasons for that. Maybe people are up, uh, you know, buying more guns and just a lot of crazy people. I think a lot of it just had to do with a lack of social service intervention, you know, from, from cities and, and, and counties. Uh, and just a lot of lonely, desperate people. We know that all of the indicators that we track that look at sort of mental health stress have been off the charts. I mean, that is just particularly for younger people, right? Um, and a lot of this is just isolation. I don't know about you, I'm an introvert, so I don't care, you know? <laughs> I gotta live alone for, you know, three months. <laughs> I'd actually find it a relief, but, uh, but a lot of people really need, you know, that, that daily interaction. Um, and then you have opioid deaths, again, surging this past year. This will be the highest 12-month period ever 
uh, as of the end of uh, December. <clears throat> so that's scary. We actually thought it was going down a little bit. You know, uh, 2019, it was going, it was, we thought we had turned the corner. It's no longer driven by prescription drugs at all. Um, this is uh, 70, 80, 85% fentanyl. These are synthetic opioids. Right. That's where it's all coming from now. So it's changed in uh, it's changed in character. And and that fentanyl used to just be, you know, in eastern United States. Now it's everywhere. Now it's in the western United States. It's it's you know gone everywhere. You can you can um, buy it on the dark web. You can mail it, you know, in an ordinary envelope. It's 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 so light. I mean, you know, there's no way to catch it. I mean, that's that's part of the problem. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I don't want to uh, give short shrift to the social impacts and because we're going to talk about that and the political economy and so forth. But in the midst of that, you did mention something that was somewhat negative, I would say, on the uh, e- economic impacts. And that is about the uh, corporate uh, um property, so corporate real estate. I was thinking in particular about uh, two anecdotes um, that will go into a larger question. One is about Marriott. You were talking about bad timing. Marriott has decided to change their headquarters from what I would consider a a plush suburban, you know, uh, almost exurban uh, real estate uh, place to downtown Bethesda, which is much more centrally located at the worst possible time, just like you were talking about in terms of bad timing. Then another anecdote I would add, Hyatt yesterday, they sent me a, a uh, because I'm part of their their program. I've, I've probably been to a Hyatt once, twice in the last uh, a year because of the pandemic. They said, hey, uh, you can, uh, you, uh, your office space, you can uh, use it a Hyatt. I, that's all the headline said, something of that ilk. I didn't, uh, I didn't open it, but I'm sure that what they're saying is we're about to repurpose uh, some of our building usage uh, for other use, office use, because- We're not filling our rooms, yeah. Exactly. So I think this is a big problem. Um, my question to you is, in terms of this repurposing of office use and in terms of the downside impact for revenue for cities, how is this all going to work out and over what time frame do you think it can work out? Well, you know, it was not an accident that the uh, this recent rescue plan that was just passed by Congress had a huge dollop of money, you know, for for state and local governments. Um, and, and a lot of these were cities that are, that are just beginning to be in trouble. I, I think it's now going to grow as time goes on. You know, their taxes are based on previous assessments and so on. Actually, they, they haven't done that badly yet. But moving forward, when all the assessments are going to be redone, right? In other words, this is kind of a slow motion car crash uh, for, for municipal governments. So uh, this is a big issue, you know. If you if you hold Moonies, I think that's um, in fact I'm going to do something coming up on that. You know, the, these are investors who are really concerned about how each city is doing and how how each city is going to be impacted by that. Uh, and and again, this is a this is kind of a slow trajectory, partly because of the nature of assessments and the nature of leases and so on. It doesn't hit right away, <laughs> but you can kind of see it in advance, right? Yeah, I, I agree. It's going to be a it's going to be a big deal. It's going to be a big problem. And a lot of these cities, of course, were already underwater. You know, in their pensions and their in their infrastructure, they weren't keeping up. Right? I mean, they were they were already like just barely gasping. Right? Uh, for for breath. Yeah. So th- this is um, this is uh, n- not a great time, right? I mean, if you think about uh, some of these major businesses and a lot of people moving out, that's like the worst news. Um, if, if you're, you know, if you're a Chicago, if you're a New York City, right? 
You know, um, do you have any thoughts on Europe and other um, areas of the world in terms of how they are impacted? For instance, uh, let's talk about Europe where, you know, the urban wealth is greater probably. There, there's been less suburbanization, perhaps you could say, in some European countries than there is in the United States. And so they're more densely packed in. Uh, do you see those kind of demographic trends happening there? Europe is an interesting case. Uh, uh, Europe has been hit very hard by COVID. I think their policies were somewhat better than the United States. Uh, they are a somewhat older society, however, uh, you know, particularly Southern Europe, you, you saw how much, you know, places like, uh, like uh, uh, Spain and Portugal and Italy got hit by COVID. And particularly, even though I think their policies last year were somewhat better, uh, their, their, their vaccine rollout has been terrible. And that just has to do with the, e the continuing weakness of the EU as an institution. You know, the interesting story about COVID in Europe when it comes to the vaccines is, is initially each of the individual countries was going to take the lead, right? And they were very successful early on. They were calling the shots. They were going to make contracts. You know, they're, and then they said, oh, wait a second. Shouldn't we be doing this through Brussels? You know, we should all be doing. And then suddenly everything slowed down to a crawl, right? Uh, that's why the, the current EU commissioner is under a huge amount of heat from mishandling the whole thing. So they're very slow. Uh, and one of my fears is, is that the EU is so slow now in recovering, and they're going to be so behind economically coming out of this thing, that they're going to be unable to pick up some of the stimulus uh, uh, boost that's coming out of the Biden plan, right? Plus Jerome Powell, right? I mean, you just have everything, you know, pedal to the metal, right, uh, in the United States. And I think that one of the, uh, I mean, if you talk to Larry Summers, you talk to some of these people, they thought that one benefit could be that all of the stimulus in the United States would flow over into these other countries. But if Europe is still shut down, then, uh, it, you know, we don't buy more European imports. Those, those import prices just go up because they can't supply anymore. And it, it keeps all the stimulus within the United States. That means more inflation here, higher inflation expectations here. That means bad news for bond markets here, right? Uh, and we don't end up helping our biggest trading partner, uh, at least you know in the in the Western world, which is which is Western Europe, uh, very much. And and uh, so a, a, a mistimed recovery is kind of what I'm saying, is uh, is I think sort of the biggest economic fallout of that. Uh, but it, but I'm very concerned. I, I thought that Europe was doing distinctly a better job last year. I think this year we look a lot better, right? Um, UK looks best of all <laughs> in its rollout. Um, uh, well, Israel maybe looks best of all, but it got, it got that early deal with Pfizer and it paid more for it and it got a special deal. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, it's, it's um, every... Nation for itself, isn't it, Ed? You know, when, when you say every nation for itself, it almost begs me to the question, me to move into the social political realm. But um, before I do, just hold that thought, every nation for itself, because I think that the social side's coming. Uh, what are you seeing uh, um, for 2020? Because you were talking about this uneven, uh, uh, you know, staggered um, recovery. It was Q2, Q3, uh, what do you think is going to happen globally? And what does that mean for asset prices, bonds, et cetera? We've been calling that this, this is going to be sort of uh, very positive for the markets, very positive for the economy early on. I think it's, it has been, you know, through Q1. I think well, that will continue through into Q2. I, I no longer know exactly how far that's going to be. But I do think that um, uh, the the problems would begin to arise uh, toward the end of Q2, and right. uh, the the problem kind of hitting the wall on two counts. One is disappointment on uh, the vaccine, partly because you know a large share of Americans, in fact, people all over the world, it's unclear whether they'll take it, right? Um, and uh, and also because of the variants, I do think that. Um, 
we have underestimated all along. We hugely, I don't know if you remember last year, everyone was saying, oh, coronaviruses don't mutate. Do you remember that? Oh yeah, do I do. That? It doesn't mutate. It has a special right. little, has a special enzyme which actually checks the replication. It doesn't end, and that's its weakness. You know, once we figure it out, it'll just you know that's it. And that's absolutely untrue. Uh, all coronas, all coronaviruses mutate, and we should have known that from the common cold. There's a reason why you keep getting the common cold. <laughs> do you know why that is? It mutates. It keeps mutating, exactly. And you can go back. And they only did these, these experiments after corona, you know, 2020. They actually just done these in the last uh, uh, two months. You can go back and you can take uh, blood serum from someone in 1975, 1985, 1990, and compare it with the common cold that was prevalent just before and after the blood sample. Compare with the blood before and the, the, the person's blood neutralized it just fine, right? But you take it, compare it with, a, with, a, with a, uh, a common cold coronavirus five years after you take that blood sample, ineffective. And that's to me smoking gun that, they, that the common cold is constantly changing itself, right? to evade um, uh, neutralization by antibodies. Uh, uh, it, uh, I think a lot of people thought, and in, in fact, I first thought when I first saw the evidence on this, is that a lot of these antibodies just lose their effectiveness over time. You know, your, your B cells kind of, you know, they kind of lose their memory and, you know, various things. It turns out to be less that than the fact that it just changes. Uh, the, the actual virus mutates in a way that the same, uh, the same antibodies just aren't as effective. And uh, uh, we're gonna find that to be true. Uh, again, I do think the long-term future for COVID-19 is that it becomes gradually more and more quiescent. I make this point all the time, by the way, Ed. Coronavirus doesn't wanna kill you. <laughs> all it wants to do is multiply. Right. And in fact, it, it can do a lot better if you think you're healthy and you walk around and you give it to all your friends, it, it doesn't even want to slow you down. Uh, it wants you to give it to everybody. And one of the reasons, incidentally, why uh, the original SARS and, uh, and, and, and MERS uh, were actually stopped was because it was too deadly, right? The virus uh, made a mistake. <laughs> it, 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 it shouldn't kill everyone or at least it shouldn't be symptomatic for everyone. That was the real problem, right? Uh, you know, once you had SARS, uh, once you were infectious, you knew it because, you know, you felt like <laughs> you were gonna die, right? And that was the fatal flaw of the virus. That's why it could be identified and contained. And that's why it ultimately only led to fewer than a thousand deaths worldwide. Yeah, you know, uh, I think this is a good segue into the uh, social political environment because the transition that you're talking about from a somewhat deadly uh, virus, you know, with strains like the B117 strain, which is, you know, causes hospitalizations that are 2.5, 2.6 times the level of the original strain and also is more infectious to this the, the the versions that you're talking about it's going to take a little while yeah i was just going to mention that uk strain is now completely dominant all through western europe now and and that's why they're having their lockdowns exactly that's another reason it's not just the slow vaccine rollout and so on it's that they're suddenly dealing with a much deadlier and more transmissible uh, and so, you know, uh, as that happens, in even in Germany just recently this past weekend, so-called Querdenker, you know, these are lateral thinkers, are protesting. Th this COVID fatigue is there. There is a palpable sense. Uh, and, you know, actually right before this, let me just show you, I, I wrote a, a piece on what's happening in Europe literally an hour before we started this. And I got an email from someone. This is what this email says. Look, I he, he, the person says, I have 24,500 people in my Rolodex spread across all continents. As of this point in time, I am yet aware of a single person with whom I interacted personally in the last decade or at any time 
who has spent even a single day in the hospital for this bug. He continues on later. This is certifiably the fakest virus of all time in that it is totally blown out of proportion. It's all a panic power grab by politicians. The people should revolt just like 1773, 1776. I could go on, but that's the sentiment. You see this everywhere. This is what's going on behind the scenes. Talk to me about how how this plays out and what's over a longer term period in terms of you know your uh, uh, demographic thinking of ge- cohorts and generations. How is that interrelated? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Well, it's, it's exacerbating something that we saw hugely long before COVID, right? Which is this increasing polarization. Uh, we've seen, uh, you know, in America, obviously, sort of the whole red zone, blue zone thing. I mean, we've certainly covered that. It's increasingly regional. Uh, we did see, interestingly enough, even, even though Biden increased his, um, his uh, uh, kind of majority over Hillary Clinton, you know, instead of, you know, one and a half percent or whatever, it was four percent. Of course, that was enough to make sure he got the Electoral College. Uh, the number of counties that he won actually went down slightly. <laughs> so do you see what I mean? It's a smaller, smaller number of blue zone counties, urban blue zone counties. And you got all these red areas in the rest of America, right, who are voting another way. Um, That's worrying. I mean, that's disturbing. Um, And you have, and it's that sense, and you know, you get this from talking to people. Uh, I remember this distinctly back when Obama was running against Romney, when when Hillary was running against uh, Trump. Uh, people would say, I don't know any of my friends. I don't know anyone around me, right, who's voting for this person. I mean, right. how could you yeah. you know? <laughs> and, and that's actually kind of new in America. Uh, you know, ordinarily, yeah, some, some, some parties will be stronger than another, but they're more interdispersed, right? You, you, it's not like you're unaware that other people are voting other ways, right? But now it's like these different, localities that just, you know, I mean, it's all, it's all uh, Biden signs or it's all Trump signs, you know, depending on the neighborhood you're in. This is worrying, plus the development of, of what we call kind of mega brands. You know, the political parties now aren't just people who stand for certain political or policy positions. They're sort of mega brands that define your whole world view, right? what America is, what its biggest threats are, um, how, how you look at the culture, how you, in fact, what we're finding now is that people choose the mega brand first, uh, long before they figure out what their policy positions are, right? And that, that leads to some of these uh, sort of amazing sort of uh, developments where, you know, first of all, I'm gonna go red zone, then I'll figure out what to think about Russia. <laughs> which is the amazing phenomenon of all these Republicans who had been, you know, hawkish on Russia for the last 40 years, suddenly saying, ah, I think, you know, Putin's a fine guy. You know, what's the matter with him? That's <laughs> you know, wait a second. Uh, what happened there, right? So this, this is also unusual. Um, this is an incredible degree of polarization. I think the last time we saw that, again, this comes back to this whole fourth turning, right? But the last time we saw that, I think, was in the, the, the later years of the, of the uh, Herbert Hoover administration in the early 1930s. Of course, that was with the Depression coming down. Um, uh, and then before that was probably in the late 1850s. Uh, and that was more of a real sectional division. And we saw everything in America separating, including the parties, ultimately, separating, you know, you had a kind of a northern wig and a southern wig and a northern Democrat and a southern, I mean, everything split. All the churches split, all of the national organizations split, everything split, north and south. Uh, initially, that was good news for the Democrats because the Whig, uh, the Whig party split up first. 
So you got, you know, a couple of more Democratic presidents there at the end, uh, you know, Pierce and Buchanan. Uh, but ultimately, the Democrats themselves split with Stephen Douglas. And that allowed Lincoln to come in with only 40 percent of the vote, clean up the electoral college. Right. He, he, he won the vote. And, and we know what happened there. So, uh, you know, and, and yes, you could go back. You just talked about the 1770s. That was another period. And this is something people don't realize. The American Revolution at the time, if you look at letters and, and diaries and so on, people talking about what was happening, they really said revolution. Yeah, they said revolution when they referred to it as what we're, you know, the whole thing with Britain. But among themselves, they used the word civil war, right? Right. It was a civil war within America. There was a large Tory contingent, a pro-British contingent in North America, and uh, a large share of African-American slaves actually joined with Britain to liberate themselves because they were offered freedom by the British, right? Uh, as well as, as many who fought for the, for, the, for the patriots on the other side. In fact, at the end, a, a significant share, maybe 20% of the, um, of the uh, Continental Army was black. Uh, enormous tensions, right? Huge strains uh, in, in America at the time uh, and, uh, and terrorism employed throughout. I think uh, originally more in the North and in the later years, in the early um, uh, 1780s in the, in the Southern states, just uh, extraordinarily bloody and cruel uh, guerrilla campaigns, particularly in the backcountry it was a it was a very bad time, and I will say that the most recent economic research we have now shows that that period, from the late 1770s through to about the mid 1790s, was probably one of the biggest economic contractions in American mm -hmm. history. Probably larger than what happened even in the uh, in the 1930s. Uh, we became a significantly more agrarian republic <laughs> by the time of, of uh, you know John Adams' second uh, uh, John Adams' presidency and the time that uh, that Jefferson took over. Uh, uh, we kind of uh, de-urbanized. <laughs> I mean, it was it was it was traumatic, uh, and 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 then we then we recovered, right? Let me interrupt you for a second because everything you're saying. Uh, makes me think about Europe because, interestingly, all of the dates that you just gave me coincide with uh, European, let's call them revolutions, if you will, at the same time. So think about the, the original French Revolution. It was coincident time-wise with what happened in the U.S. Yeah, at a little the, bit later, but you're, you're right. I'm looking at the 1840s, 1850s. You think uh, the Second Republic in France you think uh, in Germany, uh, you had the unrest, you had the revolutions of 1848, 1849. Uh, by the early 1860s, you know, you had the formation of, of Italy that happened. And then, of course, we all know what happened in the 1930s in Europe as well. So it's almost as if uh, these, uh, you know, these cohorts, if you will, of time, there's some intersection there. Uh, globally. Totally. Yeah, totally. The way I see it, Ed, is that Europe was actually on a slightly slower schedule than America in that, you know, their, their French Revolution was obviously a little bit later, you know, in many ways, almost patterned. And that became a big issue by the 1790s between the Jeffersonians and the, and the, and the Federalists, right? Uh, about what attitude should we have toward the French Revolution? But that came late in our revolutionary era when ours was really kind of complete. Um, I think their awakening came a bit later, and that took place more in the late 1830s and 1840s, and finally reached a paroxysm in 1848. The more, you know, that's more of a second turning. The more of what I call a, a fourth turning event in Europe, mm. which was, which was, I'd say, um, uh, less less critical in Europe. Uh, it didn't really hit Britain much at all, but it hit uh, it hit obviously France. You know they had the you know they they lost another war with Germany, <laughs> or I guess they lost the first of of several wars with Germany. That was the Franco-Prussian War in 1870. 
you know, this enormous, these were basically, what happened around the world in the, in the 1860s, 1870s, was nation building mm. struggles. So the development of the modern nation state, uh, the turning of Prussia, you know, the 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 uh, defeat of, of Austria Hungary and the and, and the creation of modern Germany, uh, the uh, successful wars that uh, uh, Russia the Tsar had with with Turkey to expand, you know, the power of Russia, the Meiji Restoration in Japan. You didn't mention, of course, that was in 1860. Suddenly. Japan overnight becomes this modern dynamic nation state, of course, going to lead all of Asia out of subjugation by imperialism. And it, and it became uh, the great champion uh, for, for Asia. You know, the, the, their, their experience with Japan got a little bit more unfortunate <laughs> as, the, as, the, as the 19, you know, 20s gave way to the 1930s. But my point is, is that these were big turning, uh, turning, uh, 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 turning points, which are very similar in a way to the Civil War, which is the nation building experience in the United States. I mean, we turned a, a republic almost consisting in some people's mind of an alliance of uh, independent states, right? Right. A little bit, maybe a little bit stronger than the Continental Congress, but it wasn't clear how much stronger Two, by the end of, of the Civil War into uh, unquestionably, you know, a, a nation state, a, a, a modern centralized nation state. And then you're right about the about the 1930s, which was much more synchronized around the world. Uh, no question about it, which is why actually you get global generations that have that are um, uh, are so parallel throughout not only all of Europe, including Russia, uh, but even much of East Asia. You know, remember that uh, at the same time, the United States and Europe and everyone was fighting the Second World War, um, you know, India and China were both had its wars of liberation uh, and the beginning of its own nation state and the development of what we call a hero generation, you know, what they call it in China, the long march generation, or as they call it, the second generation, you know, kind of coming out of uh, the uh, the Civil War, you know, Chiang Kai-shek fleeing to Formosa and, and 1949, uh, which is a huge, the, the biggest moment ever uh, for, for, for China today. And the generation that came out of that victorious, of course, has this enormous heroic civic reputation, which, which today China keeps hearkening back to. And by the way, which they mark, you know, their um, century long goal of 2049, right? Mm, From mm -hmm. 1949 to 2049 is when they expect to have finally ridded once and for all the century of humiliation that came before. So, and that's another thing I think that's certainly warming up. Uh, I don't know if you've covered the news um, of, uh, you know, Antony Blinken and the Biden administration's first, uh, 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 you know, confab with, uh, with China in Alaska. Uh, but that was uh, that was filled with fireworks, and I, I think that this is something that um, that this new geopolitical confrontation is also something that we're seeing on the other side of COVID nineteen. You know, in the end, uh, although uh, the coronavirus started in Wuhan, uh, uh, in the end, China did pretty well. Uh, it may not have even suffered a single. It looks like it didn't suffer even a single year of a real GDP decline. Um, so that will be unique. One more bragging point, right? Uh, right? And it dealt with it harshly, as you would expect an authoritarian regime to do, but I think in the eyes of certainly most Chinese, successfully, right? Um, and that's what people count on governments to do, right? You know, this is a good point to think. Uh, so uh, where do we go from here? So you, you brought up the fourth turning. Uh, we're talking about historical parallels to the present day, uh, and, and we see an ascendant China. Uh, what does this particular episode look like, and what are the parallels uh, in the past that will help us understand this particular episode? Well, you know, the the um, the, the the best parallels are just looking back at other fourth turnings, uh, and they come they they. 
you know, they, they, uh, they unfold in any number of ways. I mean, some of them are, are very hot right at the beginning. Uh, some of them kind of blow, you know, uh, kind of, uh, uh, burn on a slow fuse and then kind of explode at the end. Actually, what happened uh, from 1929 to 1946, it was a little bit more like that. Um, you know, you had this Great Depression at the beginning, but you didn't have a lot happening through most of the 30s. Um, I think FDR got, you know, put together a very successful political coalition. I mean, he, he won just enormous victories uh, uh, in, in 32 and particularly uh, 1936, you know, the first New Deal, second New Deal didn't have a lot of success overall with completely changing the direction of the economy. Uh, that really waited until, you know, after recovery from, you know, yet another recession in, in 37 and, um, uh, and ultimately dependent on the complete mobilization, something he never could, even the Democratic Party, even the New Deal couldn't have done on their own, which is the complete national mobilization of America. And that took a global war to do. And that transformed America at the end. I think by that time, America was ready to do it. And I think it was one of the reasons why a response to World War II was so different and so much more successful than how we performed in World War I, is that we had become a really different country by then. So uh, I, I think I would call that a punt, as in many different things could happen, and uh, we just have to wait and see. Well, we have to wait and see. I, I will say that that I, you know, if we, if you're looking more, I mean, you're kind of look. I, I regard a fourth turning as a generation long era, so that's like a lot to predict. But if you're talking about what's going to happen in the nearer future, if we're mm -hmm. just talking about the next two to four years. I think we can be a little bit more specific, right? In other words, um, I think we're just talking about it. I think uh, we've moved from, you know, secular stagnation as being the problem, which is, you know, post-GFC for the decade after that, right? Uh, to uh, uh, accelerating inflation expectations. Because I think everyone, including Congress, both parties, you know, Republicans by default, have kind of accepted the logic of MMT. Uh, right, this is kind of modern monetary theory, and you can just print money your way out of it. You know, money is free now to borrow and to give out. And I think that's a fundamentally changed fiscal perspective. I think the Fed is on board with it. I think everyone's on board with it. And I think that creates a very different danger moving forward, one that we didn't face before. But I think in the long run, actually, that could be used by policymakers, not so much as a problem, but as a solution. So you got this big, you got this big issue of uh, you know inequality of wealth, Ed. What about inflate your way out of it? I mean, we can simultaneously solve the problem of the national debt, plus redistribute to creditors to debtors. We just do it all in the same policy. What do you think about that? Well, you know, asset prices are the big problem there, meaning that. Well, here's an example that in Germany is an uh, let me because I was I'm gonna I was gonna ask you about Europe how how do the next few years look there I think uh, Germany's uh, ten year bond uh, adjusted for inflation is at one of its lowest points uh, since or actually ever uh, you know you take you know 1.8 percent inflation expectations and then you add in you know minus 30 percent. Minus zero point three zero percent, rather, you get minus two point one percent. So, if the average person is is having inflation suck away their purchasing power, they're actually getting poor relative those to those who hold hold assets. So, it could potentially exacerbate uh, the uh, those differences. And then the question is, how does Europe, as an example? Uh, deal with this because they they have a different political structure with the EU than the U.S. in terms of redistribution and things of that nature. Well, the, I don't think Europe faces the, that. I mean, if Europe faces a lot of problems that we don't. I mean, just demographically, fertility, uh, uh, the the coherence of their of the of the of Europe. I don't think it works. And then if they, if Europe doesn't work, then they don't have a foreign policy. <laughs> I think Europe has a lot of problems. Right. Uh, I I don't think um, uh, inequality is 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 anywhere near you know the top of their list. 
Europeans don't depend upon private assets at all for their retirement. They overwhelmingly depend upon pay-as-you-go payments from government, right? This is a big difference. I mean, with the exception maybe of, of the Netherlands, and there, there are a few countries which have large you know, private funded pension schemes, either through corporations or individuals. But by and large, it's just reliance on government. You know, you pay into these public pay-as-you-go systems and they pay people. Uh, America is different, right? I mean, Social Security pays a smaller share uh, for people who are, who are in old age. We rely on these private systems. So, you know, this is a way to, and, and generally these people are more affluent who have more private income, you know, from bonds and, 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 and annuities and all the rest is how the insurance companies and all the financial management companies make all their money. Uh, but I, I do think that that's, that is a, is a, it's not like anyone's going to figure that out. Like, oh, I have a, I have a way to fool people. It's like, that will be the path of least resistance, right? That will be how we can get a massive winning coalition politically. And this is the one section of the population that either can't complain or even if they do, uh, they won't win and they'll acquiesce. You know, it's kind of like that. And by the way, that is what happened in World War II. The big decline in the Gini coefficient in America in terms of wealth and income was modest decline through the 1930s. It really went down steeply uh, during World War II. And a lot of that was inflation. Um, people held all this, you know, uh, treasury debt, they had all these bonds and so on. And suddenly, even with price controls, we had these huge surges of inflation, particularly just after World War II. And, um, you know, the, the, we had financial repression. <laughs> this was deliberate financial repression, right? Uh, we, we kept, we kept yields down and, um, uh, we didn't allow people to get a return on it, uh, because we wanted to keep the federal government's uh, uh, allies under control. Uh, and and that's, that's largely, you know, kind of what happened. That was the era when we saw the biggest quantitative shift. And, uh, you know, as well as kind of on the benefit side, you know, the GI Bill and, and all the housing benefits and everything that happened, uh, Social Security finally coming on stream and all the rest of it. So that's the other thing, you know, that, that comes out of a fourth turning. If a fourth turning requires this massive ramping up of the tie between citizen and state. I mean, just to put it that bluntly, right? Mm -hmm. So that suddenly people are required to do more for the state and they get more in return, right? Suddenly it becomes a larger transaction. I think any, particularly Generation X, uh, you know, who came of age in the 80s and then particularly started their careers in the 90s and OOs and so on, uh, all their life has been the opposite direction. A weaker link between <laughs> citizen and state, right? And I think we always have to reflect, you know, that it can't go in one direction indefinitely. There have to be periods in history where it suddenly becomes stronger again, or else it would have, you know, it would have disappeared eons ago, right? Uh, there has to be another historical dynamic. And I think we're discovering or we're looking forward to what that dynamic is, right? Uh, that's the kind of dynamic we had in the, in the 30s and early 40s. Uh, where, where suddenly that became a much stronger bond. And it gave rise to a period uh, which we call, often call the American high. You know, these are the presidencies of Truman and Eisenhower and John Kennedy. We call that the American high because there was this enormous sense of community in America, this sudden uh, appearance of an enormous middle class who we haven't seen before. You know, it seemed like an unprecedented share of Americans suddenly owned their own homes. They all had union cards, you know what I mean? And, and it just seemed like we were a lot more equal than we were before. Uh, and people at the time thought that was a good thing. Boomers, when they came of age, thought that was a terrible thing. You know, we we're all homogenous, you know, we couldn't speak our mind. <laughs> you know, So boomers came of age thinking that was just terrible oppression. We all had to be middle class. Why couldn't we do our own thing? <laughs> because it wasn't just economic equality. It was a certain kind of culturally, you know what I mean? We all had to like behave the same way as well. That was part of the code uh, coming out of World War II. And I think this is a period which is uh, boomers remember very well coming of age. Um, Xers don't remember it at all because they were born just after, right? They, they, they have no memory of that. 
because it was all getting attacked uh, by the late 60s and 70s by the time, right, by the time they remember even as kids. So it's, it's interesting, and that this is why I focus a lot of my time on, is thinking about how every generation's relationship to these eras is fundamentally important in shaping who it is and, and how it thinks about the need either to shift away from that or shift back to that. And boomers will throughout their lives, even when they're, you know, getting, you know, the last of them are getting really old uh, in, the, in the 2040s, will always be molded by that experience of growing up in a post-crisis era. And um, that's to me what makes generation so fascinating. Well, Neil, uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, it's been too long. Uh, let's, uh, let's see how these next few months go, and maybe we can uh, have another conversation, probably via Zoom, the next time as well. Yeah, yeah don't be too optimistic on all that personal stuff. Uh, uh, but you know, it'll be good for me and maybe for you. Again, we don't mind uh, you know, living in our own castle, right? No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> all Thanks, right, Ed. Thanks so much. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.